Hi everyone, my co-host Luke has sworn he would make me go without lunch or dinner if I didn't briefly tell you about the Michael and Us Patreon. At patreon.com slash Michael and Us, for a mere five Yankee dollars per month, you get an entire extra episode every week. Recent Patreon episodes have tackled such films as Sorry to Bother You, Morgan Spurlock's Supersize Me, Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, and a very bizarre movie that we found on Tubi called Trump vs. the Illuminati. All that and several years worth of bonus content at patreon.com slash michaelandus. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. This is a Toronto-based podcast. Uh, I'm still in Europe, but the spiritual home is Toronto. I still pay taxes in Toronto. And therefore, I wouldn't mind kicking things off on this episode with just a little bit of local Toronto news, you know? Wouldn't that be fun? Don't you think our American listeners would enjoy that? I do think it would be fun uh, in the same way that I've asked that we discontinue that Great White North song, whatever the hell that is, whenever we do Canadian content. I feel like uh, in the spirit of Canadian nationalism, we, we don't need to introduce ourselves as a Toronto-based podcast in the same way that, like, Brooklyn-based podcasts just treat New York as, like, like, the default neutral thing. Like, the neutral and universal subjectivity is to be in Brooklyn, New York. We should just do that, but, but for Toronto. And let the exposition uh, reveal that we're in Toronto, uh, as opposed to saying, oh, a little bit of local flavor. I don't know. What do you think? Perhaps it's a fool's errand. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, we're not going to be using... I don't want to say we're never going to use it again but we're going to be using the uh getty lee take off to the great white north song less when i mean we were basically using it to apologize in advance for talking about canada <laughs> what is that great white north thing i mean i grew up in canada and i have no idea what that is lest any american listeners or listeners elsewhere think that that's some like great canadian patriotic classic or something well first of all it is a great canadian patriotic classic it comes from the bob and Doug McKenzie album, The Great White North. Luke, have you ever seen the movie Strange Brew? If you have, you'll be familiar with the characters of Bob and Doug McKenzie, the classic beer-swigging Canadian archetypes played by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. Came from SCTV. Well, that that song was the big novelty song from their album, which went like mega, mega platinum in Canada when it came out in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so, so like in other words, the, I mean, that just kind of makes me even more suspicious of it. The ironic sort of Canadian self-parody was actually just received very earnestly. I like that album, but nevertheless, <laughs> Toronto News. Folks, as we've mentioned on this podcast, Toronto just recently had a municipal election. Our mayor, John Tory, was re-elected virtually unanimously to a third term. <laughs> it was one of the sleepiest elections ever held anywhere. Turnout was the lowest it's been in modern times. Tory, I mean, I don't want to say he ran unopposed, but it certainly felt that way at times. Nevertheless, it was a consequential election because looming over it have been the specter of huge changes to local government 
And this past week, that specter came to fruition. Uh, I'm mixing my metaphors, I think. But the Ontario provincial government, led by Premier Doug Ford, friend of the show, passed legislation that will turn Toronto's city government into a strong mayor system one that resembles municipal governments in New York and Chicago. Now, formerly, the mayor of Toronto had just one vote on council legislation, just like any other councillor. Toronto currently has 25 city councillors, so that means if the mayor wanted to get his agenda passed, he was expected to cultivate a certain amount of consensus among council and get at least 50% of those 25 councillors. But under the new system, the mayor has veto power over bylaws that council has approved that the mayor believes conflict with provincial priorities. Council can override the veto, I believe, if it gets a two-thirds majority vote, which is, you know, virtually impossible. Crucially, Tory has requested the ability to legislate with support from just one-third of council, and he got that. So... Obviously, Tory has been working behind the scenes with Doug Ford to make this happen. He's vague on why exactly he needs these powers, but his key priority seems to be housing. Uh, he wants more <laughs> mid-rise housing in low-density areas. Now, I mean, Tory's not stupid. He knows he has to sort of say that there's like a progressive agenda to this. Well, another word for housing is development. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, Toronto is a city with a great affordable housing crisis. And when a center-right mayor and a right-wing premier work behind the scenes to pass this, I mean, I I like to think they care deeply about the housing crisis, but I I don't think that's actually what it is. (laughs) No, no, of course not. No, I mean, this kind of thing is completely consistent with modern right-wing ideology, you know, it has a through line with the kind of Tory ideology, sort of militant Tory ideology that we had in Ontario in the 1990s in the form of the Mike Harris government, um, in which Rob Ford's father was a was a backbencher in the uh, Conservative Party at that time, Doug Ford Sr. And, you know, the, the Harris government was also very interested in kind of municipal reforms. And um, we've probably mentioned this on previous episodes, but just a kind of quick political science note. Uh, in Canada, Canada municipalities are a level of government, but they are creatures of the provinces. Um, you know, that's generally how they're referred to. They don't have a sort of embedded status. They are subject, at least potentially, to reordering and reorganization by provincial governments, which means, you know, as is the case here, that a political party that gets 70% of the seats with less than 50% of the vote or whatever can pretty much unilaterally change the way that municipal governance works. And so in the 1990s, the Harris government undertook amalgamation. Toronto used to be, in a way that I think is probably familiar to a lot of um, American listeners and also listeners further afield, you know, Toronto used to be this kind of, you know, federation of smaller municipalities. Toronto used to have, you know, there used to be uh, the city of the old city of Toronto, sort of downtown Toronto and a bit north of what's generally regarded as downtown Toronto. You had East York, uh, North York, Etobicoke, etc. And these were sort of, uh, you know, they had kind of uh, regional councils in which the councillors, you know, officials from uh, each municipality would meet. And one of the most controversial things the Harris government did in the 90s was this kind of forced amalgamation. Uh, There was something called Mega City Day, where it sort of took effect. And all of a sudden, all these old municipalities uh, ceased to exist. 
Um, there were a few things that were used to justify this. At the time, there was a kind of, uh, you know, it's just the kind of language of fiscal conservatism was, if I'm remembering rightly, this was sort of the front-facing rhetoric around this kind of stuff. Um, there was something called the Fewer Politicians Act, which I'm forgetting the date, but it may have been uh, contiguous with the megacity stuff. And, you know, the idea was basically, uh, well, you know, you've got all these, you've got all this duplication, all this red tape. I mean, the Harris government was sort of just classic, like slash and burn, make the poor's work for their welfare, that kind of thing. And a big part of that was, uh, you know, well, we got too many politicians and we should just have fewer politicians. Um, so we need to eliminate all these councils and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's a clear line from that to what Doug Ford did a few years ago uh, as Premier of Ontario, which was cut the number of city councillors in Toronto uh, in half. You know, again, sort of justified on fairly similar grounds. And you've got something like this, which I think is a pretty natural outgrowth of, you know, there, there's a through line from uh, the beginning of this to the point that we've now reached. I mean, the legislation is actually called... Uh, the Strong Mayor's Building Homes Act. Um, in a perverse kind of way, I think that that is, you know, I mean, it is it is like kind of Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia worthy. But I mean, in its own perverse sort of way, it is, uh, it is honest, I think. There is a kind of a, a dark sincerity to what's conveyed in the name of the legislation. Because really, you know, if you're somebody like John Tory, who's a sort of avuncular technocratic conservative, like his whole presentation is so boring, you know, you forget that he's a politician and you forget that there are politicians like you know as will said off the top he was he wasn't quite re-elected unanimously i mean he got something like you know 60 66 percent of the vote or something you know and the uh the runner-up candidate and the sort of well-meaning technocratic uh, urbanist who was running uh, against him as the sort of uh, progressive standard bearer who, uh, you know, I, I voted for, but who, uh, you know, I never expected to win. He got uh, something like 20% of the vote, uh, maybe a bit, little bit less than that. Uh, you know, John Tory uh, had his election night party at uh, the Royal York Hotel, kind of palatial hotel by Union Station in Toronto. And, uh, you know, Gil, the, uh, the, the runner-up uh, with his 19.5% uh, or whatever it was, had his uh, election night event in a, a small bar called Clinton's that I'm sure Will and I have been to uh, <laughs> once or once or twice. I think in the back of the bar, I'm not even sure if they filled the whole thing. This is the kind of conservative John Tory is, you know, very much a sort of big business guy, sort of like compassionate CEO archetype. And, you know, he's, he's really tranquilized politics in the city. You know, the voter turnout was less than 30%. Actually put the uh, historically low voter turnout in the provincial election a few months earlier to shame. I think that was... Uh, that was below 50%, but it was certainly not 29%. So that's uh, that's Tory's uh, presentation as a politician. And it's been politically quite effective um, in the sense of getting him reelected. I mean, it's, it's kind of completely switched off popular democracy in the city. There were a few, you know, a few wards during the municipal election where uh, some, you know, really solid uh, left-wing candidates got elected by running, you know, municipal populist campaigns. But, you know, basically the turnout was very, very low. And, you know, John Tory won this, you know, thumping mandate with uh, less than 30% of the vote. And the way he approaches governance is very much an extension of his political style. I mean, I really think he's somebody who, like, fundamentally does not understand that there's any function to governing a complicated, uh, diverse, modern city like Toronto. There's no difference between that and, like, running a large company. Like, he thinks of the city as a firm, and he thinks of himself as the chief salesperson of the firm, and I guess he thinks of the citizens as kind of like, you know, the clientele or consumer base of the firm. I mean, he's a guy 
guy who's said things in the past, I'm sure I've quoted this before, uh, once he was talking about public transit and he referred to it as being for people who can't afford a car. So that gives you some insight into John Tory's political outlook, you know, like public service is a sort of charity for the less fortunate. He's that type of conservative. And, um, you know, I think he shares a fair amount of, uh, you know, perhaps not in terms of his personal style, but in terms of his uh, ideology, he shares a lot of terrain with someone like Doug Ford, who's, you know, a little bit more uh, bombastic and a little bit less respectable in terms of his presentation. John Tory is certainly more respectable to liberals, which is why so many of them have voted for him three times now. But, you know, he's been personally close to the Fords for a long time, uh, you know, despite, I think, sort of getting elected uh, in 2014 because of the perception that he was a sort of anti-Ford candidate, uh, which was pretty absurd that people bought that, but uh, they did. But I think the two, you know, whatever differences there might be, kind of superficial or otherwise, between their respective political presentations, you know, they are ideologically similar, you know, in the same way that the state is just like a firm or a corporation. But whatever their uh, differences of political presentation might be. I mean, I think that they are, you know, very similar in their ideological outlook. And a big part of that is you know, the belief that, you know, the role of a city government or a provincial government for that matter is just to, you know, keep everything open for business. You know, uh, I said earlier that, you know, housing, uh, another word for housing is development. And I mean, I think that's what this kind of thing is about. I mean, when people like John Tory or Doug Ford look at the structures of representative democracy, whether that's at the local level or the provincial level, when they look at the regulatory structures that are in place, when they look at the appointments processes for influential boards and decision-making bodies, whatever it is, they just kind of see obstruction to what needs to to happen. And what needs to happen is developers need to be given more permits, you know, so they can make money and by making money or so the story goes, uh, they build buildings, which then people get to live in. And then you address uh, presumably the problems of housing supply, which are allegedly to blame for rents in Toronto and housing prices, both of which are completely off the charts. Uh, I heard one housing expert on the agenda recently, TV Ontario uh, show the agenda. Uh, say that by some metrics, Toronto is actually a more expensive city now than London, which is astonishing. I'd love to dig a little more into that. But anyway, all that's to say that I think this is what's at the root of this drive for more executive power for, you know, the mayor of Toronto. It's a level of executive power that I guess is closer to what somebody like Doug Ford wields if they have a majority government. And it's part of a longer term trend, you know, really going back 40 or 50 years now, I suppose. I mean, there's been a kind of steady drive in governance everywhere towards more centralization because the function of government has just become more and more about making the markets run more smoothly. And you know what makes the markets not run smoothly? Uh, you know, prohibitions against building under certain conditions, if it's detrimental to the environment, if a community doesn't want it, etc. If there are tax structures in place that, you know, mean that there's less capital that can be used for these kinds of projects, just whatever it is. So all of it, I, I would argue, is, you know, this is kind of the political outcome of 30 or 40 or 50 years of moving towards a kind of society where just more and more we govern around the market, we govern according to the dictates of the market, and we organize ourselves increasingly uh, locally and nationally with the idea that making the market run more smoothly, which really just means, you know, making it easier for the investor class and, and other capitalists to do what they do and make profit, that has just become more and 
and more central to the point of being the exclusive focus for a lot of politicians and particularly politicians of the you know center and center right. So I think that's kind of the the deep history of something like this. But it is uh, it is really ridiculous. I mean, it, it will just mean that the already diminished number of councillors in Toronto will have even less power to represent their constituents. I mean, it's kind of like uh, we're shifting from like th- this is like you know the Republican era of Toronto is coming to an end. And I don't know, John Tory or Doug Ford is like our Augustus and you know bringing about a Torontonian imperium. One last thing I want to say on this is Luke and I share the same city councillor in the University Rosedale ward, uh, and we have a new councillor, Diane Sachs. <laughs> She's a Green Party politician. Uh, she squeaked to a narrow victory, a very narrow victory, basically on her environmental record. Uh, I would I would actually just interject to say that I don't even think it was her environmental record. It was the fact that she was environmental commissioner and she you know resigned because of uh, or was fired. I'm forgetting which because of uh, you know stuff the Doug Ford government was doing. And I mean it's very much like you know a sort of local Toronto version of like. I don't know, someone who resigned from the Trump administration and got hailed by the resistance or something. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but like that archetype is just very appealing to some people, right? Like the principled, progressive-minded public servant who was trying to do good, but, you know, the baddies just wouldn't let them. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people didn't really know that she was like a Green Party person, even though she ran for the Green Party in the provincial election a few months earlier. Like it was, you know, the the incumbent uh, councillor, Mike Layton, announced his resignation quite late. Very popular guy, a very good local councillor. And, you know, people did not have a lot of time to get to know the candidates. And so, yeah, now by like 150 votes, we're stuck with uh, this this Green Party person as our city councillor. Well, she's someone who had a long history of good relations with John Tory, which was something that was either emphasized or de-emphasized in her campaign, depending on how progressive her audience was. Uh, well, this past week, she voted to uphold the right-wing councillor, Francis Nunziata's legislation, which prohibited the strong mayor legislation from being the subject of discussion at the first council meeting. And she was the tie-breaking vote. It was 13 to 12. So uh, an inauspicious start for University <laughs> Rosedale's new progressive champion. I'm looking forward to I mean, I know incumbent councillors are hard to unseat. I know there's going to be a lot of apathy in the next election, but I am, I think we can do it. I am looking forward to four years from now when Diane Sachs gets the boot and spends the rest of her life on the board of a bank somewhere, (laughs) figuring out ways to make RBC more eco-friendly or whatever. Uh, Anyway, I have only one political principle. And it is uh, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and uh, render unto God that which is God. And uh, that is the revelation that I learned from our film on this episode, Howard Hawks's classic, Sergeant York. They won't get me. I'll go back in them hills. You ain't even put hands on your trail in 40 no matter how far back you go. Then they better not catch up with me or they'll be a wishing they hadn't. York, take over. The only non-com left. The rest of you keep under cover. Come back here. Where are you going? You didn't give me command. Would you? 
Would you believe this is the second Howard Hawks film I've watched in the past month? I guess that's not that impressive a statistic, but it is. Uh, what was the other one? Well, the other one was His Girl Friday, which is possibly one of the funnest movies ever made. Uh, I did have fun watching this movie, but not as much as His Girl Friday, which is, you know, this this movie was kind of corny and generic uh, with some good moments. And His Girl Friday is just like a wailing guitar solo of charismatic performances and good writing. Yeah, I'd say we're pretty much uh, one-to-one in agreement, both on this movie and His Girl Friday. Uh, But I do want to bowl you over with some statistics, Luke. Uh, This movie was such a phenomenal success in its day. When it opened in 1941, it was the biggest hit of the year. Not only that, it was the third biggest movie of all time up to the point of its release. It was third only to Gone with the Wind and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It made more than twice as much as the second biggest movie in 1941, (laughs) and substantially more than such other 1941 releases as Citizen Kane and How Green Was My Valley. Not only that, this movie was unanimously praised by critics. It won Gary Cooper an Oscar for Best Actor. It was Howard Hawks' only Oscar nomination for Best Director. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) President Roosevelt saw this film. He invited the subject, Alvin York, to the White House. General Chiang Kai-shek ordered a print to show his troops in China. It's amazing to think about this because I think today this movie, if it lives on at all, it's it's more as a curio than a classic. I mean, it's nobody's favorite Howard Hawks movie. I think the only people who watch it really are, you know, maybe people stumble on it on Turner Classic Movies or people like me who are trying to work their way through the Howard Hawks filmography eventually get to it. What people need to remember is this movie opened in New York in the summer of 1941. (laughs) And when it was in wide release around the country, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So yeah, I I think Howard Hawks owes a debt of thanks to Admiral Yamamoto myself. (laughs) I also think it's important to remember that Howard Hawks, you know, he is one of the filmmakers that the auteur theory was founded on. Today, he's probably one of the best known of the Hollywood directors of his era. But none of the people who have written about Howard Hawks really think about this movie very much at all. It's considered a very atypical Howard Hawks movie. Hawks's filmography tends to be divided into two categories. There are dramas, which tend to be about groups of strong men who are excellent at what they do, you know, their pilots or their soldiers or that sort of thing. The comedies would invert this. They tended to be about strong, brassy women and wimpy, bespectacled men. Uh, and they'd be very wacky and antic and full of shenanigans. You know, the typical Howard Hawks drama is Only Angels Have Wings. The typical comedy is Bringing Up Baby. But this was a for-hire job for him. He got this job within a week of being fired from another movie. He didn't like the script. I've got a whole list here of ways that it departs from a typical Howard Hawks movie. It's his only one that's focused on characters from the South. He generally didn't like that milieu. Uh, It's the only one with a heavily religious theme. It's the only one that has a prominent mother character. It's one of only two times that he worked on a biopic, and the other one he left before it even started filming. You know, he made four World War I movies, and the other three all emphasized the dark side of the war. Not this movie. This movie is unabashedly uh, a propaganda film. It's it's very pro-war. And, it, you know, it, <laughs> it goes to some rather absurd lengths to be pro-war. And, I mean, the, the main reason I wanted to bring it up is because it's an interesting historic document in the way that it addresses 
this dueling influence of Christianity and nationalism in the American psyche. You watch this movie and it's still very relevant. Christianity and hardcore patriotism and, and you know, hawkishness would seem to be conflicting with each other, but this movie finds a way to thread that needle. I, I know a certain moral majority that would like a word, Will. <laughs> So, uh, what do you what do you think of the main character of this film, <laughs> Alvin York? I mean, he's a sort of uh, you know played by Gary Cooper. Obviously, he's a sort of aw shucks version of Chris Kyle. Very charming, sort of uh, yeah, down home southerner. The film spends much of its time in the South. I mean, the uh, actual war footage, which you know is pretty uh, is pretty spectacular in in some ways. That occupies, I don't know, what, about a quarter of the film at the end? And we spend much of the movie in Tennessee, where Alvin York is just a kind of humble sharpshooter. He's kind of a hobbyist sharpshooter. Never had any training, but is really good at it. There's a scene, which I guess is supposed to be funny, where he wins this, like, turkey shooting contest, where there's a turkey in a hole. And uh, it keeps popping its head out and none of the guys can hit the turkey. I'm not really sure why the turkey would stay there when it's just getting (laughs) repeatedly shot at. That didn't really make sense to me. But anyway. Have you ever gazed into the eyes of a turkey, Luke? You look into its eyes and you see only immense stupidity. I believe that remark that you're quoting was actually made about chickens, but perhaps it perhaps it applies here as well. Um, anyway, uh, Alvin, what do we know about him? He's a bit of a rapscallion. He uh, gets into fights. He drinks too much. Uh, what are what are his other character points? Will uh, there's a young woman that he wants to uh, get married to, and he uh, indicates this to her, and she says something like, uh, "You know, well, shucks, Alvin York. Folks say you're no good except for fighting and hell raising, and I, by God." I reckon they're plumb right. Can I point out, you mentioned that she's a young woman. Uh, in reading up on Alvin York, apparently he was 29 and she was 15 when he <laughs> began his pursuit of her in real life. So she was indeed quite young, yes. Much of the first half of the film is spent with Alvin York trying to become a homesteader, trying to round up enough money to buy this particular plot of land. All he needs is $70, or maybe it's $60, I can't quite remember, and he has two months to earn it, but he doesn't quite earn it in time. And this leads to a dark night of the soul. He's very upset. He's going to go out and he's going to kill the evil landowner who reneged on the deal. But then he quite literally has a road to Damascus moment. He's, you know, struck off his horse and he discovers God. Now, Inconveniently, this happens around the time that the United States enters the First World War, and he gets drafted, but he's been reading the good book, and something that he's learned from it is that you're not supposed to kill other men, you're not supposed to be violent, and he doesn't see any possible way to reconcile this with his Christianity. So he tries to find a way to be a conscientious objector. Uh, Uncle Sam closes all the loopholes, though. He points out that Alvin York is not actually a member of any official denomination. He's just sort of a free-flowing, Bible-reading Christian who knows a pastor. So uh, unfortunately, he's not actually able to prove that this is against his religious beliefs. Nevertheless, Alvin York is a good man. You know, he he goes to basic training. Even though on his file it says he applied to be a conscientious objector, he goes through the training. Well, I, I like this because there's a sequence where, you know, he, he 
keeps getting microaggressed by the officers for being a, a conscientious objector. And, you know, Alvin York gets his rifle and, uh, you know, clearly, like, knows how to use it, knows his way around a rifle while the other guys don't. And the staff sergeant who's on duty or whatever says, oh, you've got your own rifle, eh, York? I wouldn't have thought that you'd have your own. And there's, like, three or four little incidents like this where they keep sort of negging York for being a conscientious objector. But then he blows their minds by uh, being an ace sniper. And that's the end of it. That's right. I mean, he may be a conscientious objector, but he's been shooting at turkeys for, for years. And he's been hell raising for years. Uh, he's a late in life convert. So eventually he's called into the admiral's office or the corporal or the captain or whoever it is. And they say, listen, listen, <laughs> the admiral bud, you, or the corporal or the captain. It's all the same to me. Uh, they, they say, listen, bud, we've been looking at your file and, you know, we don't we can't we can't figure it out. You're a great sharpshooter, but apparently you wanted to be a conscientious objector. And he says, well, yes, sir, I've read a book. And uh, that book is the Bible. It says, thou shalt not kill. And then... Well, I'm, I mean, by the way, I'm going to get you the big book of military rankings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Luke, I'm a conscientious objector, too. I don't, I don't even want to know what these people are. Alvin York has read a book. And then the, the captain says to him, well, I've got this other book here. Literally, he has another book there, and he, it's, 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 it's uh, American history. And he, says, <laughs> and he says, now this is a good book, too. Now, you got to read this. I mean, this is a book. I mean, yes, you know, God is good, but, but what about this story of all these Ever people? heard of the Battle of Yorktown, son? Yeah, all these people came over here, and, and they conquered this land, and they tamed this land, and they fought back the British who wanted to take this land from them. And then they fought back the Yankees who wanted to take this land from them, and they were a little less successful at that. <laughs> but the point still stands. So the captain gives him this American history book to take with his Bible, and he says, and now apparently this, this actually happened. Can you believe this? <laughs> Al, the real Alvin York was allowed to take two weeks off from basic training, go back home. And apparently it actually happened like in the movie. The real Alvin York spent a night like sitting in a mountain wrestling with this with this dilemma. Well, did he really get hit by lightning? I don't know if he was really hit by lightning. <laughs> he, <laughs> uh, so that is an example of how, you know, like how heavy handed and corny this movie is, is that he isn't metaphorically hit by lightning. Like this isn't like a moral revelation that comes to him. He is literally hit by lightning. Uh, also, the movie downplays the real Alvin York's aphibophilia, wisely so. But nevertheless, we see Gary Cooper as Alvin York sitting on the side of that mountain looking at these books you know talking talking to God much like Jesus in the desert and he hits upon a particular passage render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's render unto God that which is God's render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's Caesar, things which are Caesar's, and unto God, God. And so he realizes. Oh, you could have two whole separate moralities. <laughs> well, it's like <laughs> I, it's it's so funny because it's like I mean the render under Caesar thing has been you know there's you know endless uh, interpretations of it, but he just has the most conservative interpretation of it uh, like imaginable. 
it's like, oh, render unto Caesar. It's like, okay, so just like obey authority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can have whole one whole set of principles when you're in church, but then when you're outside of church, you can have another set of principles. And I mean that that fucking that's something, now, something in, else that a certain moral majority well understands too. <laughs> it's also the moral framework of Jerry Falwell Jr. <laughs> yes. Now, much later in the film, Alvin York comes up with, I think, a more defensible analysis where he says, well, listen, if you've got if you've got a German machine gun that's taking out everyone, if you kill the machine gunner, then you've saved lives on ballots. You know, he says a version of that later in the movie. And it's like, well, why didn't you just say that before? I mean, that like the pragmatic approach makes much more sense than this trying to have it both ways approach. Anyway, the last act of the movie largely takes place in France, where we see the deed that put Alvin York in the history books. He and his small battalion were behind enemy lines. They were trying to capture this railroad that the Germans had occupied. They were overwhelmed with enemy fire. And then Alvin York himself took out 25 of them to the point where the squadron leader or the, the captain or the admiral or whatever the, 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 German, the German was, he, he raised the white flag. Alvin and his troop of just seven other people captured 132 Germans, including senior officers. And uh, march yeah, them to a POW like cor- camp. Corporals and privates and Ex- exactly. And they <laughs> they took control of the railroad and uh, you know the rest was history. The end of the movie. Alvin York arrives in New York, a hero. He's the subject of a media frenzy. He's much like a couple of real heroes that we saw a few weeks ago: Spencer Stone and Alex Scarlatos and Anthony Sadler after a fateful trip on the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Well, I, I should also say uh, there's a scene where. Where, you know, because in real life, Alvin York was honored by the national governments of several different allied powers. And we see a little montage of this in the movie. And uh, yeah, did you notice the look on Gary Cooper's face when the French officer uh, kisses him on the cheek? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Now, the producer of this film was a guy named Jesse Lasky. He was in New York at the time that Alvin York arrived in victory and was the subject of all this celebration. Jesse Lasky was the co-founder of the famous players Lasky Theater Chain. He was a very powerful man in 1919, and he struggled for years to convince Alvin York to bring this story to the screen. Apparently, Alvin York, to his credit, resisted many offers in his life to monetize his experience. The only money he made directly related to this experience was what he earned on the lecture circuit. And he put a lot of that money into various educational initiatives in the poor areas of Tennessee. Yeah, now see, if he was rendering money unto Caesar like Jerry Falwell Jr., he just would have done all the uh, corporate sponsorships and stuff. So little, little bit of inconsistency here from uh, Mr. York, but perhaps in the right direction. And by the way, those 15, 17 to Paris boys have really figured it out. They've really figured out a way to cash in. They've shown the error in Alvin York's thinking. But anyway, Jesse Lasky apparently pursued this for 20 years. By 1939, he was almost a ruined man. He had lost his house. He was deeply in debt. And as his last way out of complete destitution and ruin, he went to Alvin York and said, listen, we got to stop this guy, Hitler. I know that you want America to get into the war. This could be a powerful tool to rouse up sentiment against Hitler. And Alvin York said, okay, where do I sign? 
And Hawks himself, as I said earlier, was not particularly enthusiastic about the film. He brought in John Huston as one of the writers, a young John Huston. And I have a quote here from John Huston, who is credited on the screenplay. He says, York was a very amusing fellow, and I tried to put this across in the film. I tried to show his comic side, and dramatically he was a terrific character. I don't believe the film delivers a terribly profound and relevant message. We weren't trying to make all quiet on the Western Front. That was a film that set out to show the First World War in all its horror, all the better to shock the viewer so that he wouldn't repeat it. We chose to tell the story of a man, a particular case. It's completely infantile and absurd to want to try to find an overall moral in it. So anyway, that's the complete John Huston quote. Not terribly enthusiastic about the film, and I think he has a pretty good read on it. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I think for me, part of the weirdness of this film is that, uh, because obviously it was a film designed to uh, encourage American participation in the Second World War, um, and, you know, it was apparently quite successful in this. But, you know, it uses the First World War and, you know, this story out of the First World War as the hook for that. And that, I think, is what is the root cause of one of the film's real flaws, which is that the revelation that Alvin York has is entirely taking place within his soul. It's an individual rather than a sort of political or even a larger moral revelation. You know, when he's going off to war, there's an exchange between, I guess, one of his uh, sisters and uh, his mother. And the sister says, Ma, what are they fighting for? And she says, I don't rightly know, child. I don't rightly know. And <laughs> And the thing is, the film doesn't rightly know either. I mean, there's literally zero sense of what the First World War is about. Uh, and at the end, when York is basically turning down this future of kind of um, being rich and uh, doing all kinds of advertisements and being a celebrity and whatever, uh, you know, he says something like, uh, well, what, what we done in France is what we had to do. Some fellas who did it ain't coming back. I reckon that kind of thing ain't for buying or selling. How'd you like my Gary Cooper, by the way? <laughs> but what they did in France, I mean, it's not clear what the sort of wider context for that is. I mean, the isolationist sentiment that certain characters exude in the first third of the film, you know, where it's things like an old man in a bar saying, oh, the war in Europe, uh, Nate in our corner up here. And, you know, that's that's kind of the end of it. You know, people are very uninterested in the actual dynamics of the war, uh, etc. And that extends right to the end of the film, even when Alvin York is fighting in it. Now, obviously, that's partly about the fact that Hawks is not trying to do a deep read on the First World War. He's trying to present viewers with an inspirational story that's going to, you know, encourage young men to sign up, you know, join the U.S. Army when the time comes. But the net result is that the First World War just ends up being a sort of generic war in Europe, and it's not really clear what it's about. And because so much of the film centers on this revelation that its main character has, I mean, that revelation to me ends up being kind of a narrow one, uh, which undermines the, uh, you know, I think, epic grandness that the film is trying to project. Its attitude towards war reminds me of what Henry Gibson sings in that song at the beginning of Nashville. Uh, <laughs> I pray my sons won't go to war, but if they must, they must. <laughs> you know, there's like so much time of this movie is spent uh, making it clear that, well, he must go to war. There's not a lot of interrogation as to why he must go to war. There's just the sort of inevitability. That yeah, it's like war is part of the 
Amer- it's an immutable part of the American experience. And so like, you know, when there's a call to arms, you you go. I mean, it's like there's the scene where Alvin York is talking to some old timer in Tennessee and the guy's saying like, oh, you know, my, my father would talk about, you know, fighting them damn Yankees. And my, my grandfather would talk about fighting in the revolution. And it's just like, there's this trajectory of sort of bloody conflict, but like there's no horizon that the film gives you uh, beyond that. Central to America's perception of itself is, as you said, war is an inevitable part of the American experience, but it's also something that we don't want. Well, that's right on the title card at the beginning, because I think the film is dedicated to, you know, all those who want peace in the world or something. And I mean, it's funny to think that you're imagining this movie being directed directly towards both isolationists in the United States, as well as just sort of like centrists or people who, you know, people who haven't given a lot of thought to the war in Europe as a way of selling it to them. It's sort of saying, okay, well, you're Alvin York. You're the quintessential American. You're the ultimate American archetype. You know, you're you're not too smart, but you're well-meaning and you love God and you, you don't want to go to war. And why do you not want to be in the war? Well, because you hate violence. No, Nobody likes violence. And that's the exact reason that you don't want to go. That's the reason you don't want to go to the Second World War, because you're such a good person. Well, what if we told you that there's a way to reconcile your goodness as a Christian, as an American, with going to war? And I mean, the movie doesn't actually do that, but it sort of gestures in the direction of doing that. Well, as I think you put it to me when you were pitching the film, it's a film in which, you know, God and country are pitted against each other and country wins. (laughs) Yes. York, have you ever read this? History of the United States. Yeah, sure a lot of writing. Daniel Boone. Yeah. You know about him? Well, everybody down airway knows about Daniel Boone, the first man into the Valley of the Three Forks. Yeah, he was quite a man. One of the greatest. And that book's full of great men. York, what do you suppose that Boone was looking for when he went out alone into the wilderness? Well, I never thought much on it. Was he looking for new lands? Might be. Maybe. Maybe for something more. Something that the man just can't see with his eyes or hold in his hands. Something that some men don't even know they have until they've lost it. Yes, sir. To be free. Well, that's quite a word, freedom. One more thing I want to say about this movie, uh, a little bit of its aftermath. First of all, this movie, as I said before, was Howard Hawks' biggest hit, although he himself actually did not attend its star-studded New York premiere. Uh, He chose to stay in Los Angeles and continue working on his next movie, Ball of Fire, uh, which is a much more typical Howard Hawks movie. So that shows a little bit more of what he thought of it. But the movie, of course, was a huge hit. And here's just a passage I want to read from Todd McCarthy's biography, Howard Hawks, The Gray Fox of Hollywood, which speaks a bit to some of the real-world impact the movie had. He writes, Its reputation was enhanced even further by the role it played in helping to quell the braying of some virulently right-wing politicians in Washington. Incensed by what they viewed as Hollywood's role as self-appointed cheerleader for joining the war, isolationists and America firsters in the Senate launched some loudly publicized hearings before an interstate commerce subcommittee on September 9th. The subject was the allegedly insidious content of Hollywood movies, particularly the warmongering dramas that dared to suggest that Nazis represented a threat, that Americans ought to extend a helping hand to Britain and perhaps prepare to join in the battle themselves. 
as always, attacking the film industry made for headlines. But when Sergeant York began building in popularity, editorial writers all over the nation began using the film as a club to demolish the Capitol Hill reactionaries, stating that the filmed biography of a religious pacifist conversion to war's righteousness represented, quote, the full and complete answer, unquote, to the senator's rants. By late October, the hearings fizzled out. So there you have it. According to Todd McCarthy in his definitive biography of Howard Hawks, uh, this movie actually did lay the groundwork for America's entrance into the Second World War. To be fair, so did Tojo and Yamamoto. (laughs) (laughs) I pray my sons won't go to war, but if they must, they must. I share our country's motto, and in God I place my trust. May have had our ups and downs, our times of trials and fears, but we must be doing something right to last 200 years. We must be doing something right to last 200 years.